Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Tonight on Piers Morgan Uncensored, two of the most controversial prisoners in the UK, both vying for freedom. First, he spent four years in a British jail and could face a lifetime of maximum security in the United States. But the debate still rages. Is Julian Assange a whistleblower or a terrorist? I'll talk to his father and his brother. Plus, Charles Bronson, arguably the most notorious prisoner in British history, loses another bid for freedom today. I'll talk exclusively to his lawyer. He's ever killed anyone. Will he ever be let out? Also tonight, British schools allow children to change their genders without even informing their parents. Are kids being put at risk by policies of wokedom? From London, this is Piers Morgan Uncensored. Well, good evening from London. Welcome to Piers Morgan Uncensored. If your son or daughter got into a fight at school, you'd probably want to hear about it. I know I would. The same would apply if they were being bullied or falling behind in class. Clearly, parents have a right to know what's happening in their children's lives so they can offer support in whatever way they can. So what about if your child decides to transition to another gender? You probably want to know about that, wouldn't you? I've had four kids. I'd want to know. But it turns out that a shocking number of schools in Britain think you, as parents, have no right to know that. Children are being allowed to change their names, their uniforms and their personal pronouns, that dreaded phrase, using different toilets and changing rooms without their parents having a clue about any of this happening. Just 39 of 304 schools investigated by the policy exchange think tank said they informed parents if their own child said they wanted to change gender. In many cases, parents only found out when they got a letter from the post citing their child's new name and new pronouns as a point of fact. Think about that. That's how the parents found out. Their kids have decided to change their gender and their name. Most school surveys said they're actively teaching the contested theory that children may have a different gender than their biological sex. This is completely outrageous. It's policy driven by fear of the woke mob, something I've talked about many times, but this is what I'm talking about. Schools are so afraid of being eviscerated for not tolerating the latest whim of gender ideology that they're failing in their duty to both parents and the kids. Scandals like the Tavistock Clinic, remember that? Where hundreds of children were handed puberty blockers despite having other, in most cases, other complicated mental health problems show the importance of getting this right. Children with gender dysphoria need intensive care and support from adults with their best interests at heart. But we shouldn't be afraid to point out that many of them might have other problems. Others may simply be gay. Gender identity has become a fad, a craze, virtually unheard of a few decades ago, almost unavoidable in schools today. When things in our society change this much this fast, we have a right to at least discuss it. And parents should be at the very heart of that conversation. Well, we'll debate that later in the programme. But first, it's been 20 years since the invasion of Iraq, rightly or wrongly. Few did more to call attention to the conduct of US military in that war than the WikiLeaks founder Julian Assange. 
WikiLeaks made global headlines in 2010 by publishing leaked classified files and evidence of war crimes. Fighting extradition to the US and 157 years in a maximum security jail, Assange took refuge in the Ecuadorian embassy. He was arrested after emerging and has now spent four, year, four years in Belmarsh prison, probably the toughest prison in the country. Supporters say he's a free speech champion who's shone a light on military brutality. Critics think he's nothing less than a terrorist who threatened national security. My name is John Shifton. I'm Julian Assange's father. WikiLeaks found that Julian Assange has been arrested. One of the most notorious and controversial figures in custody. Assange will remain behind bars until that extradition hearing, which has been set down for the end of February. I urge the Department of Justice to drop the charges. The maximum jail sentence of 175 years. Well, I'm joined now by Julian's father, John Shipton, and his brother, Gabriel Shipton, who've made that new documentary film on their fight to secure Julian Assange's release, along with security and terrorism expert Will Geddes. So welcome to all of you. Uh, thank you very much to the Shiptons uh, who are joining me from America. Uh, let me start with you, John Shipton. You're Julian's dad. Um, it must be, regardless of the debate that we're about to have about this, incredibly tough for a father to see a son, a child incarcerated for so long without any apparent conclusion to these legal proceedings in Belmarsh, which I've been to, which is one of the toughest prisons in the country. Oh, it appears it's very difficult. Uh, and the circumstances of Julian's declining health make the, the, the matter dire um, and critical. John, how often do you speak to your son? Uh, Julian's allowed a 10-minute uh, phone call to me uh, daily. Uh, um, I haven't spoken today, but the day before yesterday, we had a 10-minute conversation. And, um, the I mean, how is he? How would you categorise his state of mind? Uh, well, it goes up and down. Generally, uh, not good, but uh, um, as we report upon uh, the journey across the United States and then the enthusiasm with which we're greeted, this is heartening for Julian and uh, lifts his spirits considerably. You know, it's interesting, uh, John. I've been a journalist for more than three decades. I've run big newspapers in the UK. I've covered this story, obviously, extensively. And I watched the movie the other day again in preparation for this interview, actually, just to remind myself of the whole story as it, as it all played out. And... A large part of me has a lot of sympathy for what Julian Assange did. You know, he exposed some really serious things and he did it in a fearless way. There's no question of that. But a, a part of me also, when I was reminded of this, felt that his actions in, in the way he did it could well be categorised as reckless. Just putting everything out there uh, seemed to me something which, for example, as an editor of a newspaper, we would never have been able to do. Um, did you, when you saw what he did, did you have qualms as his father that that particular action in just putting it all out was, uh, was something that was always going to get him into this kind of trouble? Oh, Piers, you know, first place I have to accept your assertion that just putting it all out, which is, uh, if you forgive me for saying so quite directly, incorrect. The... Uh, there were a hundred media partners uh, with Julian 
uh, each of them responsible for a particular area. All of this was covered in the hearing, uh, that uh, the redactions, the ultimate release of all of the cables unredacted was done by Krypton.org, a John Young uh, site in New York. OK, let me bring in uh, Gabriel. Gabriel, Julian's your, your half-brother. You've made this film, you guys, because you're desperate to try and get him out, I guess, of prison. Um, how is that going? What reaction are you getting, particularly in America? Well, we're getting very emotional reactions here in the US. We're uh, about halfway through a 59 event tour around the United States. Um, people are enraged when they realise what's going on, uh, how their rights uh, are at stake in, in Julian's persecution. People, after, after we do showings, people come up to us and say, you know, thank you for doing this. Thank you for standing up for our First Amendment uh, in the United States. So. It's, it's really breathtaking uh, that audiences around the US are really beginning to understand what's at stake for them uh, in, this, in this case, their democratic right to know what governments do in their name. You know, recently, uh, back in October, I interviewed uh, John Bolton. He was uh, former US National Security Advisor, of course, and he said this to me. He's committed clear criminal activity. He's no more a journalist uh, than the chair I'm sitting on. Uh, the information that he divulged uh, did, in fact, put many people in jeopardy. Uh, it undercut the ability of the United States to have confidential diplomatic communications. And I hope he gets at least 176 years in jail for what he did. So very strong words there, Gabriel. Um, and that is a view shared by a lot of Americans, there's no question, uh, particularly in, in the political sphere, on the Republican side, certainly, who believe that what your brother did um, was bordering on treason. What do you say to that? Well, everything that Julian published uh, it was in the public interest, and he partnered with these media organisations, as John said. Uh, so you're talking about all the the largest prestige media organisations around the world who publish the exact same information. Uh, people uh, like John Bolton, uh, they would like to be able to classify everything so that the public uh, had no idea uh, what, the, what the governments that they elected uh, were getting up to. And I think, it's particularly in the United States now, you're seeing uh, a larger and larger movement uh, for government accountability, people understanding that uh, classification of documents uh, is, is uh, totally uh, overused. You know, uh, Joe Biden uh, has classified documents in the boot of his Corvette. Uh, Trump has classified documents in the basement of Mar-a-Lago. Uh, this overclassification of documents so that the public doesn't understand what the government is doing uh, is really a problem for democracy. And you have to ask ourselves, Knowing about what our government do does in our name is, is our right and our democratic right. And do we want to live in a democracy or do we want to live in a tyranny uh, where governments uh, act with impunity, in secrecy uh, and no accountabil accountabil well, okay. accountability? Let, let me bring in Will Geddes now, who's a security expert. Well, we've uh, spoken about this before, but what is your reaction to this? Because it is a complex issue. You know, my, my journalistic side 
believes in free speech, she believes a lot of what WikiLeaks exposed was absolutely in the public interest. But I do think there were also legitimate concerns about the sheer amount of material that was put out there, which could well have put lives in jeopardy. What do you think about it? Well, Piers, I'd agree with you entirely. I think uh, there are some aspects of the information that wasn't released by Assange, which was in the public interest. But public interest is a very subjective word or term. There is information that does require confidentiality. I, I work with confidential information on a daily basis. And that information has to be secured for a variety of, a very wide spectrum of reasons. And one of the greatest concerns is there was simply a, a release of information that was not filtered necessarily, I believe, in the public interest. And when we talk about a democracy and about there being access to certain information, that democracy can be undermined by that information or certain information being protected. Now, I do believe in whistleblowers, and I do believe that there is a reason and also a purpose for whistleblowing. But there was information that Assange was responsible for, whether he had acquired it himself or he was publishing it on behalf of other parties. The problem is, is as the disseminator of that information, he was putting a lot of national security, particularly in the United States, at great risk, and also other members of obviously the intelligence community. And that was putting lives at risk. That's what we've got to bear in mind. It wasn't just uncovering atrocities or misuses of power. This was information that helps us keep our country safe against the bad guys, the terrorists out there who want to find out about how those instruments of intelligence are used and what is available to them. Let me bring back in John Shipton. John, in January, President Biden uh, was accused of hypocrisy for demanding the release of journalists detained around the world while he continues seeking the extradition of your son. What did you think of that? Oh, you know... If I could just address a few of the items that uh, were rattled off there as though that they are the, as though that they're the utterings of truth. They're simply not. Robert E. Gates, the Secretary of Defence, in testimony to the, the Congress, uh, stated categorically under oath that it was awkward, embarrassing, but no damage was done. General Carr giving evidence at the trial of Chelsea Manning, stated equally categorically, under oath, nobody was hurt. So those assertions that people make, founded upon conjuring up ghosts of fear, the all-of-government uh, investigation in the Australian government made the same similar declaration, no laws were broken. So... Those statements where people conjure up fears that something may have happened, something may be happened in the future, and this and that was in danger, are simply baseless assertions, uh, uh, rather loudly denying the fact that there are crimes involved in this, and they point to the fact that maybe somebody's endangered when the 400,000 Iraq war files re revealed clearly that 15,000 civilian deaths had been gone unreported. And what is it with these people that can't address the matter of what the 
files actually reveal and deal with that. And then if, the, if they feel that certain secrets have been uh, uncomfortable, then cause the United States and SIPANET to look after their own secrets. Rather than blaming Julian and Chelsea Manning, these people can't manage their own secrets. God's sake, man. John, um, you sound weary from this. You sound exhausted uh, fighting this battle for your son. How do you think this ends? Oh, you, you know, you just, uh, Piers, uh, d deal with each day as it comes and try and uh, keep a bit calm. It's in early morning here, so I'm never good in the mornings. I, <laughs> I, uh, after midday, I rouse up a bit. <laughs> but the ending will be uh, the yearning for justice in people's hearts and the revulsion at injustice will prevail in this matter. Millions of people around the world join us. Every single civil society organisation in the United States of standing has written, 27 of them have written to Biden asking for the charges to be dropped. Sorry, to Merrick Garland the, 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 of the DOJ Department of Justice asking for the, the five great media legacy newspapers that partnered in this distribution of these revelations, the, the New York Times, the Guardian, the El Pay in Spain and Le Monde and Der Spiegel in Germany, have equally written to the Department of Justice head, Merrick Garland, and asked for the, the uh, charges to be dropped. The phenomenon and the problem is global and the phenomenon and the problem is addressed globally by people concerned with this injustice. John uh, and Gabriel, thank you both very much indeed for joining me. Uh, the passion is clear and the battle goes on. Uh, and Will, thank you very much indeed for joining me as well. I appreciate it. Well, coming next tonight, from one notorious prisoner to another. Today, Charles Bronson's had yet another bid for freedom rejected. He insists he's not a threat to the public, he's never killed anybody, and yet he's still in prison after five decades. He may never come out. Is that right? Is that fair? He's certainly notorious. He's certainly been very dangerous. Is he now? I'll talk to his lawyer after the break. He's been dubbed Britain's most violent prisoner, and today Charles Bronson failed in his eighth attempt to be released on parole. In almost 50 years in jail, he staged nine rooftop protests, ten sieges, holding at least 11 victims hostage. He's never actually killed anybody. So notorious is he, he's even had a film made of his life. Tom Hardy played him in the 2009 movie Bronson. And then a voice note from prison, which he uh, made uh, this week. Bronson insisted that he loves people and isn't a threat. Now, they keep drumming it into the public. I'm a danger. Well, who am I a danger to? I've never been a danger to the public. I love people. Love them. I love the world. I'm not a filthy terrorist or a rapist or a murderer. So who am I dangerous to outside? 
more dangerousness was in the prison. Well, do you remember Charles Bronson's lawyer, Dean King, for his first interview since this latest parole move failed again? Uh, Dean, is he ever going to be let out, do you think? Well, we certainly hope so, Piers. The test for the parole board is, is it necessary for the protection of the public that he remains confined? Obviously, this time around, the parole board have decided that he does um, remain mm. uh, dangerous. But the, the issue for us, Piers, is very much this. The parole board are only limited to looking at release or open conditions. He's a Category A prisoner in a prison in the prison. Now, the only person that can progress him through that system is Dominic Raab. And there's a lack of political will, certainly in his case, to make that progress. That I, mean, I mean, look, on the face of it, for someone who's never killed anyone, it does seem extraordinary that he's had to spend most of five decades now in prison. It's just when you get into the weeds of why they keep rejecting his parole, you start to, to understand the other side of this. You know, he was originally jailed for seven years in the early 70s for armed robbery. Uh, he got let out twice, but both times was back in prison within weeks on other robbery offences. He's had seven failed attempts at parole, as we said, um, but he was given seven years in 1994 for false imprisonment and blackmail. In 1997, he took a deputy prison governor staff and three inmates hostage and got five years. In 2000, he got a life sentence for kidnapping a prison art teacher, Phil Danielson, in Hull Prison the previous year. In a 43-hour ordeal, Mr Danielson was beaten, stabbed, left with panic attacks and PTSD and has never worked again. Um, over the course of his incarceration, as we said, nine rooftop protests, ten hostage sieges, 11 victims. In 2014, further sentenced to three more years, resulting another prison governor, Adrian Wallace, held him hostage for five hours and tied him up and beat him. There is a long, long litany of appalling incidents and violence against people trying to run prisons, um, some people's lives being completely ruined. So, yes, it's true he hasn't killed anyone, but he's clearly been extremely dangerous. He's got this reputation for a reason. Of course, and we've never, we've never sought to portray him any differently. But the, the so why would he be safe on the outside now? Well, the argument that one of the witnesses made at the parole hearing was he's actually more risky and dangerous in prison towards prison governors and staff than he would be in the community. Yeah, but how do you know that? Well, the parole would never know. The parole would are looking at future No, but how do you risk. know that, as his lawyer? Because, I mean, it's, to have so many incidents of mm. extreme violence, kidnapping yeah. people, falsely imprisoning them, torturing them and so on, I mean, it doesn't sound like you could have that much confidence that if he got on the outside and somebody wound him up the wrong way, he wouldn't do this kind of thing to people on the outside. Some of the evidence that the parole board heard during the hearing was the motivation and his progress is the best it's ever been. The next step, the next test, is to progress him within the prison to enable him to mix with more prisoners and in a less harsh regime. When was he last violent? 2018, five years ago. There's been no violence at all? No violence then. for five... Do you think he's a genuinely changed character or does he just want to get out? He's... Or both? It's a mixture of both. It's self-motivated interest. He's reached an age now where he knows if he steps out of line in the future and commits an act of violence, he's dying in prison. But the test, the test for him will be progress in the system. And the thing is, Piers, he's in a cell 23 hours a day. He's supposed to have an hour of psychology a week. So in the last year, you would expect at least 52 sessions. He's had 13. And the, the reason for that isn't his behaviour, it's resources. The prison he's in is significantly understaffed. But we should all know someone the who, who has you know, terrorised prison officers and warders... You know, why should he be given any better treatment, frankly? I mean, he's, he's persistently 
done that until, as you say, five years ago. But for four decades, he was terrorising people in prison. But it's not better treatment. He's in a prison in a prison. So the two, the two limbs for someone to be put into that arena now is risk to prisoners or staff mm. or persistently disruptive behaviour. Well, as we established at the parole here, and he's not engaging in persistently disruptive behaviour, and in actual fact, the prison service and the authorities have reduced his risk to staff, to medium, which is the lowest it's ever been. Now, one of the arguments Dominic Raab put forward at the parole hearing was he's a high risk of serious harm to the public. Therefore, that means he cannot be released. But the system and the reality is nine out of ten lifers are released as high risk of serious harm. So it's right, an and, and as he said, and he's got some point to this, he's not a terrorist, he's not a, a rapist, he's not a murderer, he's not any of the conventional kinds of criminal. A lot of his crimes really are inside prison against people that work there. It's not to justify them at all, it's just to compare them to perhaps other people who are being let out on a regular basis. You can kill people and be let out within 12 years, right? Yeah, in some circumstances. But I think we have to look more globally at the parole system. This week, uh, Dominic Raab has introduced the Victims and Prisoners Bill, which is going to enable him to stack the parole board full of law enforcement officers. And there's credibility issues with police officers at the moment. But parking that aside, he wants the ability to veto parole board decisions. So then we're looking at what's the point of the parole board. It's utterly absurd. What's your message to Dominic Raab, then? My message to Dominic Raab is he's got enough going on in his own, um, with his own role as Deputy PM. He's under investigation himself. In any other profession, he wouldn't, he wouldn't remain in a job whilst being investigated. He'd be suspended. Yet here he wants to interfere with the independence of the parole board, which is a court. But only last, only last week, the High Court handed down judgment saying um, a major piece of parole board guidance that he issued around recommendations from his own staff preventing them was ruled unlawful. Now, it was only in Charlie's case that the witnesses were able to give recommendations. He wanted to silence them all, not allow them to make recommendations. And the High Court has said that's mass contempt of court. How much of the problem that uh, your client has is to do with his notorious reputation, which he has gleefully fuelled over the years, let's be clear, uh, how much of that notoriety is perhaps the reason he's still inside? In other words, if we didn't really know much about him and he just did all this under the public radar, would he be out by now? Well, it's significantly contributed, but we need to shine a light on what's called the Close Supervision Centre. That's the prison within the prison. It's very difficult to get um, out of that system. Do you and go and see him in there? Yeah, of course. How often do you see him? Um, on average, once every six to eight weeks. And, what, I mean, how is he? What's he like? I only know what I've read. I, I, I mean, personally, I've never felt at risk from him. Never. And I say that, having previously taken his lawyer's uh, hostage. Mm. But, you know, he's... For someone who's spent so long in solitary confinement, and that's what it is, he's actually um, very down-to-earth and very with it. I think he's surprised the parole board. The parole board are expecting, over the course of three days, him to present in a slightly different way. And, of course, he handled the pressure of the situation very well. Have you spoken to him since this latest parole attempt? I yeah? have, And yes. that, what was his reaction? His reaction... Look, he's realistic. He understands that for the parole board to release someone who's mm. uh, CSC but also Category A, it's a big step. So he's focused on the next review and our next challenge, and our next challenge firmly rests with the Secretary of State. 
Uh, Dean Kingham, thank you very much for joining me. I appreciate it. Well, thank coming you. up, he's one of the journalists who exposed big tech censorship at Twitter after being asked to investigate by Elon Musk, Twitter's owner. What he found about the cosy relationship between government and big tech should worry anyone who cares about free speech. I'll be speaking to him next. Well, when Elon Musk bought Twitter last year, he invited several independent journalists to be the social network's HQ to look through its archives. Their findings have been published as the Twitter files. And the journalists say they show that the likes of Twitter, Facebook and Google are anything but independent. They claim they're actually a state-sponsored thought police, blocking people and stories at the request of the US government, security services, even big pharma companies. Here is Twitter files journalist Matt Taibbi testifying to US Congress earlier this year. Well, and... I don't... Indictments aren't a thing to disagree Do you disagree? With... There are about 40 or 50 pages. Do you disagree with the evidence outlined in those indictments? Well, indictments are just charges. When, when, I when just the... asked you, do you disagree with the evidence included in those indictments? Yes or no? And, I understand. And, and, it's a pretty detailed allegation. In the so Mueller indictment, should, by the way... You should go read the indictment and then come back and tell us if you actually think there's no proof of it. Well, but let me move on. Some, some of those, just, some let of me those move on, please. by the way, when please, they Please, let me and... move on. That's how this works. You should know that by now. So being bossed around there, Matt Taibbi joins me now. Uh, Matt, uh, I watched some of that and it was, you know, entirely predictable, I think, the way that you were roughed up there. But at the core of this, when you went through all the Twitter files, as it's been called, what was your main takeaway from what had been going on? Well, I think the, the, the point of that exchange uh, between myself and, uh, and... First of all, happy birthday, Piers. Thank I you very much. Thank today. you. Um, uh, so that was Congressman Dan Goldman from New York, and he was uh, essentially giving me a hard time because the premise of a lot of uh, the digital censorship in America is that we had this overwhelming uh, threat of Russian interference in the American informational system, and he was trying to get me to agree that that was the case and that, therefore, censorship is justified. And that's one of the things that we found in the Twitter files is that there's widespread uh, communication between companies like Twitter, Facebook, and Google, and agencies like the FBI and DHS. And the predicate for all of this is that there's a big foreign threat, but mostly they're policing domestic speech. Right, and that's, I mean, some really interesting stuff was going on with this phrase, shadow banning. For those who don't know what shadow banning is, just give me a quick explanation. And then, how much of it did you find? Oh, a lot, yeah. So shadow banning is, is just... Uh, these companies have the ability to basically dial all the way up to, um, you know, sort of massively amplified or dial all the way down to uh, unsearchable uh, anybody's social media presence. And if you look on the individual pages of people, and we got a chance to do that in the cases of some high-profile accounts, you'll see that they'll be labeled with things like, that say things like trends blacklist or search blacklist, which means that you, your name can't be searched or you can only be searched by people who follow you or uh, people who follow you can't search you. They have a, a thousand different gradations that they can do. And this allows them to more or less completely control how visible each person is compared to anybody else. You know, what was really fascinating to me was I wrote a, a best-selling book called Wake Up. 
and it did really well. But the entire period that it was on sale, my Twitter following slowly went down. Over the whole of most of last year, 2022, just, went, just kept going down. It really annoyed me. I was like, it's weird. And over a space of about eight, nine months, I'd lost about 50,000 followers. I thought, how can I have this best-selling book? And my Twitter following has always been going up and up and up and up into millions, millions, millions. And then suddenly it all started going the other way. And then when I read all your investigations, well, that makes perfect sense because Twitter was being basically run by a bunch of very woke people. You probably thought my book, Exposing the Ridiculousness of Wokery, would be the enemy to them. And I think they're up to all sorts of tricks with me because the moment Elon Musk bought Twitter at the end of October last year, from that period to now, far from going down, I've gained about 600,000, 700,000 new followers. Um, so clearly something was going on. I'm just one of many people. But that right there was evidence to me that I was being somehow suppressed right to the point Elon bought, bought the company. Yeah, and that's not an uncommon story. We heard lots of people. I mean, I myself, uh, my, my follower account was sort of at the same place for a long time. It didn't particularly bother me. But then suddenly I woke up one day and it started going back up again. Uh, we did see in the Twitter files, uh, absolutely for sure, there were instances where they were saying, this person is already being de-amplified de or uh, this, this account is already being amplified. So we know that they, they were doing that. In some cases, it's algorithmic, and in some cases, there were actually there was a human being going in and tinkering with the machinery with individual accounts. So, without knowing what was going on with your account, um, you know, it could could be either one of those things. Right. Since Elon's taken it over, obviously, he's got lots of problems and challenges he's trying to work through, and I've got every confidence he will. He's, he's shown that in the past with other companies. Um, but what are the particular challenges do you think he faces now? I mean, if you were... I know you, I mean, you have been advising him, but what are the things he really needs to get a grip of with Twitter, do you think, to make it a fairer playing field? Well, I, I don't really advise him. I mean, I, I think that's not a relationship that, that, um, that I have with him. But, uh, you know, I, th I think his purpose with the Twitter files uh, was to try to restore some credibility to the platform, uh, a lot of people had a lot of suspicions about things that were going on sort of underneath the surface of, uh, surface of social media companies. And the idea of letting this all out in the open was to say, yes, these, thing, these things were happening. Shadow banning was happening. Uh, people were being deleted. Uh, this was being done at the behest of governments and various uh, NGOs and think tanks were getting people taken off these platforms. Now people know that for sure. Maybe we can start over and, and, and create a new system that's more transparent. I think that was the idea behind the project, and I, you know, I, I hope it's been successful. Uh, I mean, the most egregious, front. most egregious example I can think of, and I wrote about this at the time it happened, was just before the last election when the New York Post, who I write a column for, uh, they had this big expose about Hunter Biden's laptop. The son of the president had a laptop full of pretty contentious stuff, but potentially criminal stuff. Um, certainly in the public interest to reveal this, and it was all completely accurate and genuine. And yet Twitter decided to suspend the New York Post account for weeks because they refused to delete this uh, information. You couldn't even find the front page of the paper on, on Twitter. Um, I found that an extraordinary piece of censorship. Yes, and that was where we started with the Twitter files. And not only could you not find the story for a while, they actually 
prevented people from sharing it with each other in DMs, which is a tool they usually only restrict um, to like child pornography. So they used the, the most extreme tools they had to suppress that story for about a day. Uh, the New York Post account was locked for another two weeks, but the, as we found out when we looked in the files, the entire premise for suppressing that story, which was hacked materials, they knew from the very beginning was specious. Uh, and uh, so it, it was a totally illegitimate case of censorship, and I think a historic one in, in, uh, in American Well, you know, I, um, I said to Donald Trump when I interviewed press. him, Donald Trump, I said, if you just stopped going on about having the election stolen and making up claims about fraudulent voting and so on, if you just stuck to what happened to the New York Post expose of Hunter Biden's laptop, there are polls suggesting that that in itself, had it been properly out there and been properly examined and followed by the mainstream media, that could have tipped the election Trump's way. So, in a way, that is a legitimate case of potentially having the, the election robbed, was that the suppression of genuine journalism that was damaging to Biden actually could have been contributing to Trump losing. It's impossible to say, but for certain it was illegitimate censorship. And it's been very disappointing to watch the reaction of American journalists, a lot of whom I think overlook this incident just because they don't like Donald Trump. Yeah. Um, the reality is this could happen to anybody and it could happen to any journalist. And, and that fact um, should really make everybody in the business very, very nervous. And uh, it, it hasn't, which is unfortunate. Well, Matt, you did some brilliant work on this, I know, with Barry Weiss and, and others. I'm so glad Elon got you in to do that, got under the bonnet. Uh, thank you very much indeed for joining me. Thanks so much, Pierce. I appreciate it. Well, coming next, the schools allowing children to change genders without even informing their parents. Are pupils being put at risk by policies of fear? We'll discuss that with the fact. Welcome back. I'm joined by the Talk TV contributor, Paul Arone Adrian, Times Radio host, Steve Abel, makes his debut on Piers Morgan Uncensored. Great to see you. I've got a new book out, Death Under a Little Sky, uh, which is described probably by you as gloriously atmospheric, no, a truly excellent debut, and other wonderful tributes. It's, it's, I'm told, a great book. I haven't read it yet. Well, I'm going on holiday today, and I will go and read it. That's a birthday present for you. Happy birthday. Thank you. 68 today, isn't it? <laughs> That's my heart. Did I read that wrong? Good to see you. Let's talk about this, this gender in schools business, right? We talk a lot about gender-related things, and some people get bored with it, but there are really important principles at stake here. What did you feel, Steve? You're a parent. The idea that a child could be at school self-identifying with all that goes with that, with the, full, the school's full knowledge and kind of cooperation, if you like, and the parents wouldn't know. What do you think of that? I think, first of all, it's such a difficult area. We talked about a lot on, on our, our programme as well today. Um, I feel sorry for teachers, mm. first of all. I don't know how you'd be a teacher in this situation. You know, you come into school, a kid comes to you and says... Um, I might have been born a girl, but I think I'm a boy. What do you do? You want to look after them? You don't want them to be bullied? Well, I don't think you don't tell the parents. Well, I agree with that. I think in the end, the only way these things get settled is if people talk openly about them. And that means there's three people involved in this. There's the school, the teacher, there's the kid, and there's the parent. Right. And why wouldn't you just talk about this stuff? I've got a 14-year-old, and it is very striking to me 
this type fluidity non-binary stuff mm. it's definitely there it's there in the school mm. couple of kids yeah but it's also time. it seems to me like it's a it's paula it does seem to me like a craze mm. right mm. it seems like it's a fad mm. like it's the trendy thing now for young people at school to go i'm non-binary i'm gender fluid I'm, they're all doing it right mm. i mean there's a school in brighton which is the mecca for all these things um where i think like one in ten kids was identifying as non-binary out of a thousand kids it's ridiculous mm. um obviously they're not all i suspect genuinely non-binary they're just going along with whatever it is and lost in the wash will be the ones who've really got gender dysphoria right so I, I have a problem with this as a parent of four kids if I found out that a school and teachers were deliberately hiding information like the gender identity supposedly of my kids I'd be furious You'd be furious, and you'd have a right to be furious, wouldn't you, Piers? Do you, do you think because so? Because, absolutely, we have to understand and remember what it is a school is supposed to do. A school is supposed to be there to look after our child and care our child. It's essentially acting as a parent when we're not. And it's supposed to be there to not only um, help our child, but to educate our child. Now, I do wonder what the message is that we would be giving to a child if a child came to you and said, keep this a secret, don't tell my mum, mm. don't tell my dad. And as an adult, you said, OK, I won't. That's, that's not helpful either. I agree with that, but why does the parent... I mean, you're a parent, we're all parents. It's the parent's job to know as well. Because yeah, we, but it's... We, but, but, Stig, come on now. You know, as I much as I love, love to think I'm the best parent in the whole wide world, there are going to be things about my child I don't know. Yeah, but it's not actually that. I was struck by the numbers, mm. the numbers of schools yes. where this was going on. Yeah. I was absolutely shocked when I read that report this morning. Well, it's seven out of ten. It's right, seven I mean, out of ten. Unbelievable. I mean, they, they only asked 150 schools, so you, yes. you, can, you can judge with that how, however, yes. however you like. But it's a, quite a big thing mm. as a parent. I mean... I'm not very... I mean, we all can realise our flaws as parenting, you know, 14-year-olds... How many times did, did you not tell your parents things about you when you were growing up? Come uh, on. Uh, plenty of things, yeah, there's plenty. Exactly, that's yes. the point. But yes. the point not, is, but not kids, about, but if kids feel like they've got a foil, yeah. they've got someone who's in on their thing, right? But this is about their identity. won't tell their parents. But this is about their identity. This is not like they might be sneaking a cigarette. But do you, think, do you really believe, Steve, this is about their identity or is it just about joining the club? I think it's about both of you. Kids... In my experience, they experiment, they're all over the place, particularly teenagers. Yes. And I think, to a certain extent, we've got to allow them to express themselves, you've got to allow them to see where they are in the world. And we've all done it. Now I think there is a, a herd mentality in this area, but we've all experimented at various times in our, in our lives, particularly when we're young. And you've got to give them a certain amount of space to do what that. Do you think about, what do you think about self-identity, which is now this massive crisis, really, where Nicola Sturgeon has to basically lose her job as First Minister because she just couldn't say what a woman is and couldn't understand why people were angry that a male rapist went to a women's prison. What, what do you feel about the, the concept of limitless self-identity? I think you can't change biology. I think it's really easy for me as a man... People can, I think people can do what they want with their lives, but it's never going to really harm my rights. So mm. the conflict of rights, mm. you have yes. to do this all the time yes, in law. There's the rights of women, there's the rights of people who mm. want to identify it a certain way. It never clashes with my rights, because I'm a bloke. People can say whatever they like. I don't need a safe, safe space. I've not got any safe spaces. That, to me, is... No, complete. no, it's all, in this case, it's all about the infringement of women's rights. Exactly now, right. Paul, I want to show you a, a video clip. Yes. This is of a, uh, uh, a coach, a weightlifting coach, male, called... Arvi Silverberg, who decided that he would exploit... This was in Canada, yes. where the rules say that anyone who self-identifies as a woman could compete in the female category. Mm. So he was a male powerlifting coach who then self-identified as a woman, entered the women's powerlifting competition, yep. uh, smashed 
the record, obviously, the all-time record of 84 kgs or something, uh, set by Anne Andres, who was also transgender, mm. a man who identifies, or male, identifies and competes as a woman. And he did it to prove a point about the absurdity... Yes. ..in yes. sport especially... Yes. ..the absurdity of where limitless self-identity takes you. Yes. It's absurd. And, 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 of course, when you look at that extreme, you are going to get the absurd. Of course you are. And that... When we are, are at the end of the absurd, we're also not helping the people who actually do want to identify. Right. That doesn't help them either. And so he was right, actually, I think. I do support him for doing that, because clearly we do need to work at this. We do need to understand what's going on. But shutting people out, shutting a parent out, is not the answer. There's not a human right to, 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 to compete in sport. And I just think, ultimately, male biology, mm. particularly through puberty, means you have a difference, you have you an advantage. You just have an automatic yes. advantage. And, and you can respect trans people and their right to live a life, mm. but they don't have a human right to compete in female sport. And I think what we're seeing now, actually, is a hardening. You yes. know, a lot of sporting bodies have just yes. recognised that. That's a relatively straightforward... Well, let me ask you guys two completely different questions, right? Um, but I want a straight answer, simple answers. Uh, ten years' time, if he's still alive, will... King Charles still be King Charles? In other words, will there still be a monarchy? That's the easy answer, yes. Yeah, I agree, yes. Easy answer. And in two and a half years' time, will Rishi Sunak still be Prime Minister? No. No. Really? I think you can just... I'm not so sure. I think you can mount a case just about that maybe the momentum is faintly swinging back. But even if he was brilliant... Yes. And even if he had... Do you know, at this stage, in 1992, at this stage, Neil Kinnock was further ahead, had been ahead in the polls longer than Keir Starmer. He was further ahead in the polls over the Tories. And the Tories eventually brought in safe old John Major. Yes, you've got And Neil Kinnock got a little bit cocky and safe old John Major nicked it. You've got Conservative MPs now launching legal action against their Prime oh, Minister. Wait a minute. Oh, oh, what the hell's happening? Oh, it's my birthday! Hey. Rosanna Lockwood has joined me. <laughs> Thank you, Rosanna. Happy birthday, Mr. President. How lovely. How lovely. <laughs> Come and sit down because Thank you. I'm actually taking two, I'm sure you'll all agree, two extremely well deserved weeks off. I'm going to go to Hollywood and lie under palm trees. Uh, and I've made the potentially career ending decision for one of us to allow Rosanna to come and sit in my chair and host Piers Morgan Uncensored. So it should be Rosanna Lockwood Uncensored which I don't even know what that is like, but we're going to find out for the next two weeks. Well, for starters, I identify as a woman. Uh... <laughs> yes! <laughs> So, we have got that. I can promise you Rosanna Lockwood unfiltered. I'm not Piers Morgan, let's be honest about it, but I will bring my own particular brand to the show. We'll have some good interviews, some nice conversations, hopefully a good show for you all. Look forward to seeing you then. I mean, are you opinionated? I know you're a very good business journalist, but have you got... I watched your Twitter feed. You're quite gobby on there. I'm fairly gobby. Mm. Uh, but, you know, that's just me being a classic introvert. It's easier to be gobby online, isn't it, than it is person to person. But in a TV studio, come on, why not? What an opportunity. Let's go for it. I will be sharing my opinion. Some of them are different to Piers's. Uh, you know, I hope you don't mind me saying that, but I'm a God. few <laughs> decades younger than you. I mean, look, it's the, normal, <laughs> it's the normal rules. If you do really well, great. If you do too well, not so good. <laughs> uh, and if you do terribly, I've never heard of you. Um, well, I'm 58 today. I know what you're all thinking. No, really? You look about 40. Um, but because I'm treating my body like a temple at the moment, there'll be none of this cake for me, but 
Stan, given you've made your debut here today, you can have a slice. Oh, bless your heart. Paula, you can have a slice. Thank and Rosanna, you. you can have a slice. Uh, because I'm that kind of guy. I'm we, all about the giving. We volunteered to come out of a cake for you, but no, yeah. one, no, no one was interested <laughs> no. at all, were they? Steve, no. great to see you. The book Thank is you. Death Under a Little Sky by Steve Gable. Uh, I'm told by those who, who've read it, it's terrific. So thank you very much indeed. Pleasure. I will read it under a palm tree next week. Yeah. Uh, great to see you all. Rosanna, good luck next week. Thanks so much, Pete. And the week after. Obviously, I'm on alert for an emergency fly-in. Keep it uncensored. <laughs> Good night. <laughs>